Hey guys, ECRG here, back with another episode. Um, today I've got a very, very special guest. And you guys know I don't do a, a lot of uh, interviews and bring a lot of guests on typically, but this one was very, very special. And I think with the specific times we're going in now with coronavirus and um, things like that, I thought this would be great to bring to you guys. So without further ado, I'd like to bring on Dr. Beer. And is that how you say your last name? That is how I say my name. All right. Perfect. Great. So Dr. Beer is here. And I'd for those of you that don't know, I'd like to have her say a, a few words about herself so you guys can get to know her. So Dr. Beer, without further ado, the floor is yours. Thank you. And thank you for having me. I really am uh, privileged to be on the show. Um, my name is Barbara Beer. I'm a physician at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, a professor of medicine and pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. I'm a hematologist oncologist, and I have um, reinvented myself several times in my life, but um, largely have been consistently in medicine and clinical research my entire life. I run a research and policy center at the Brigham and Harvard called the Multi-Regional Clinical Trials Center, um, MRCT for short. Uh, it is um, a group that we began about uh, 10 years ago to look at the ethics, conduct, and regulatory environment of international clinical trials. Um, and we do the work by pulling together stakeholders uh, across the clinical research enterprise to address questions that are current or emerging or persistent and, um, and then find uh, sort of address those problems, understand them, and then try to find practical solutions. So those kind of the stakeholders are uh, obviously uh, academic uh, uh, folks as well as industry, patient, patient advocates, CROs, clinical research organizations, um, the regulators, uh, and then whomever else is appropriately impacted by the question that we're thinking about. I also have one other job, which is to run a section of the Harvard uh, Center for Clinical and Translational Research on regulations, ethics, and the law. And, um, and in that work, I've, I've sort of pulled together with a team um, nationally a way of IRBs uh, reviewing on behalf of each other and uh, other institutions. That's a little bit off topic today, but uh, I, I bring it up only because I spend all my time in one aspect or another of clinical research uh, and am very committed to that um, area at this time. Wow, thank you for that introduction. That's amazing. Sounds like you're very, very busy and doing a lot of different things. Um, I am. <laughs> So the, the, the two main topics we wanted to discuss today um, were like how COVID and clinical trials or how COVID is really affecting clinical trials from your perspective. And then the second thing we'll touch on at the end is the lack of diversity in clinical trial patients and why um, that's something that needs to be brought up or discussed. Um, 
So picking back to something you said earlier in your introduction um, about the MRCT for short, um, is how do you know that you know what, the type of work that you're doing at the MRCT is is successful? How are you guys measuring the success of that work? That's a good question. You know, it is hard always to find metrics for success when one's working on um, policy and uh, other structural changes. You know, what does one measure? Um, so there are some simple simple measurements like the number of downloads of guidance documents that we see or the number of times people go to the website or, you know, those kinds of quantitative metrics. But what really matters is whether the practice of clinical research changes as a result of the work that we are doing or evolves. And, and to that, um, I'll say a few things. We've done some projects that I think have been very, very successful. Would they have been, would the, the projects or the, the questions evolved even if we hadn't worked on them? I think probably yes. You know, you can never do the experiment of not having done the work and seeing whether it happens anyway. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's hard as a scientist to say this is causal. But I do think greater visibility itself brings change. And one of the projects I'll work on, I'll, I'll tell you about, is an early project on data sharing and uh, and amongst the many pieces of data sharing that we've worked on has been return of results to participants. You know, participants part. Yeah, volunteer to be in a trial, spend enormous amount of time and energy and focus on, on making sure that they participate correctly and faithfully. And then at the end of the trial, they almost never find out what, what the question, whether the question was answered and how it was answered. Right. No less their individual results. Right. Um, so we started working on that. And, and in order to do that, you have to figure out how to you know, the timing and, and who's going to tell them and how do you prepare materials and some of these trials end years after a person has finished their own part, you know, role in the research. So there's lots of practical pieces to uncover, even if one agrees fundamentally that it should happen. So we came up with a guidance document and a toolkit on that. How do you return results? You know, the timing, who should do it, what what it should be, um, and the the way I bring it I bring it up now to circle back to the question is that our guidance um, and the tools were directly um, uh, cited in the regulations in Europe put out by the European Medicines Agency, the equivalent of our US FDA, so that it's now required that everybody do, does this now. Would it be, would that have happened anyway? Possibly, but I think we helped to make it happen and happen in a timely fashion. Um, evolving from that, you know, what we found were that doctors are not very good at communicating with regular people. We often re relapse <laughs> into a uh, vocabulary and complexity it is just not understandable easily. So it, it brought us to thinking about 
health literacy in clinical research. And that's a project we just um, finished and launched last year and, uh, and are still doing some work on. Um, when, we, when we think about health literacy, people say, you know, there's a significant amount of low health literacy in the United States and elsewhere. And we really turn that around. I, I don't think it's a problem of the listener that they have low health literacy and don't understand. We think it's a problem of the communicator that they're not expressing themselves in a way that is understandable to that person. So we did a lot of work trying to find not just what plain language means, but also design and imagery and visualization techniques and cultural sensitivity mm-hmm. um, in order to find language that is um, and expression that is understandable. Because after all, the fundamental bedrock of clinical research is that people are volunteering uh, to, to be in clinical research, and that depends upon um, informed consent and informed means that they understand the information. Right. So, you know, all of these um, issues for us, both uh, the, you know, have a focus, a little difficult to measure, but I think uh, by bringing them into the public eye and doing it in a way that involves stakeholders that are committed to doing the right things but may not know how, we're having um, a gentle but persistent impact. I'd say further that there's no question that we do that is one, you know, done. What we find is that the more you dig into a question or an issue or a problem, the more one can figure out how to help that problem and how to do better. So all of these these efforts that we take on have a natural life cycle and we revisit them after people have used what we've said for, you know, three three years or two or three years, then we revisit it and say, okay, what did we get right? What did we get wrong? And how can we do it better now? Mm-hmm. So, so, sorry. I was going to just ask a follow-up question to that. Um, so I guess you would think with all of the data that's collected on these subjects um, mm-hmm. that they'd be given that data back at the end naturally or throughout the study. Um, why... Is that not the case? Why aren't yeah. they? Why isn't that typically not the case where they're given that data back at the end of the study? And then to follow up on that, um, why is it important that they get the data back? Yeah. So um, let me take the first first. Um, there are two different kinds of data that people might receive. First of all, what is what did the study itself show? You know, if you compare two drugs, which one was better? Um, Or was that drug safe and effective? And, you know, they are one sort of quote data point, one person in that study. Mm -hmm. And this is a statistical, you know, knowledge base at the end. But nevertheless, people who have been on that study are interested in knowing. And if you tell them, you know, on drug A, Folks that receive drug A live three months longer on average than drug people who receive drug B. The follow-up question will be, 
well, what, what arm, what drug did I get? Mm. So as you return these results, you have to be prepared for exactly the question you've just posed, which mm. is what about individual results as well as, you know, aggregate or summary results. So we've done a project on that as well, much more complicated, of course, because um, with few exceptions, there are some pieces of the information where if you let people know too early, they might try to uncover whether they're on the experimental drug or the regular drug, you know, the standard of care, and then try to game or second guess whether by intention or accidentally, how they're doing. And all of a sudden, the data becomes biased in a way that is problematic. One of the reasons we do trials at all is because we try to get, you know, um, reliable data that is not biased by either the investigator or the patient guessing or wanting something to be true. Mm-hmm. And we all it happens, and we can't help it. Um, so there are results that I think should be returned uh, essentially immediately. That's if you do a study test, and it turns out that there is a problem that needs it that needs medical or clinical attention, right. um, and that you can obviously understand if you're doing a you know, uh, thinking about how do people process violent thoughts and you do a, a, a an MRI and see a brain mass, you're not going to sit on it just because you've, you know, <laughs> you didn't do it for clinical reasons or symptoms. You're going to tell them that they've got this and need, need to, you know, be seen. Right. Same with other kinds of values and lab tests, etc. Then there are some that we don't know what the significance is, and that certainly... I think they're a complicated question because even though we may not know what to do with it medically, it may be important for the patient to know or the person to know because they want to know. Um, And we don't want them to have additional tests for no reason. But on the other hand, you know, we don't want to make a decision on their behalf. We want to explain things well enough so they make their own decision or they make a decision with their doctor not an investigator. Um, and why do people why do people want to know? I think there's a curiosity and a, and people care about their health. Right. Part of the reason that they volunteer at all is because I think they want to contribute to society, but they also want to receive good care. Um, and I think uh, in my own my own feeling, and this is of course quite controversial, I think that people have a right to their own information um, and we shouldn't be in a position to deny them something that they want, you know, because we're in a position to do so. Now, that that doesn't mean that you have to give everybody every piece of data, particularly if you don't know what it means, but uh, on the other hand, if people want it, you have to say, look, we, we have no idea what this means, but it's yours. Right. When you do that is a different issue. And I would say for the most part, except for these settings where it's, a, you know, a present danger uh, and you shouldn't sit on it where there's a medical or clinical reason not to, um, you know, to act, then I think there's no reason why that can't be done at the end of the trial. Um 
so that there is no impact on the trial itself in okay. terms of the data. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think, uh, you know, getting getting your own uh, data is, is that controversial. Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on in tech and like surfing the web and, you know, face, you know, going on Facebook and, you know, if that's your data or not. Um, so it, it kind of makes sense with clinical trials, um, your actual like human data. Yeah. Um, you know, if you should have access to that or not. Um, but I guess there are people on the other side of that who would say no. Um, so, well, and you can see how some things would be very, very controversial, right? You know, uh, and have implications for the family or for other pieces. But I think our responsibility is to figure out how to deal with those. And and if you know for one reason or another you're not going to return the data, or you should say so. You should say, listen, let me explain something. We're going to collect this. We don't know what it means, but it does have implications for your ex, you know, uh, and we're not going to give it back to you because it, we think it could be dangerous or we think it could be misinterpreted or it could be hurtful. Um, and then they can choose whether to participate or not, but it's not fair not to be clear. So for those for people that are listening to this, um, that are, you know, working on various trials, let's say they're working on four or five trials. How do you know if the trials that you're working on are giving data back to subjects or not? Yeah. Well, at the trial um, level, for the most part, that will be in the protocol itself. Okay. And you could look it up. And for those where it isn't clear what is going to be returned or not, then you can certainly ask the principal investigator. Now, many, um, you know, there is a capacity and a resource call to do this well. It is not, you know, it's an extra visit. It's an, it's maintaining people's contact information, which of course has privacy risks. Um, it's, um, there's an infrastructure for making this happen, but, I think anybody that's working on a trial as a study coordinator, data manager, or site investigator should know or should be entitled to ask. Um, and if and if the you know investigator hasn't thought about it, it's a good discussion to have because if a patient asks for their data, at least in most settings in the U.S. They're entitled to get that data if the if it's done in a clinical setting. Mm -hmm. So a lot of technicalities, obviously, you know, in terms of whether it's research grade test or a clinical test, whether it's been validated by the FDA, whether it is you know part of the um, medical record or only the research record. So there's a lot of technical pieces in this embedded in it, mm -hmm. but certainly. You know, it's a fair question to ask and a good conversation to have. Okay. So so you're doing, you know, all this great work at the uh, MRCT. Mm -hmm. And then March comes along and there's a national pandemic. So so how did your work change, I guess, in, yeah. initially in the beginning of the pandemic? Right. So um, I, I should say that the, the first thing that happened for us is, has happened for everyone is we went virtual. 
entirely and completely, um, and we did it overnight. I don't think that we missed an hour of work in that transition, which is really a privilege for us that we're in a position to be able to do our work mm-hmm. um, from afar. Part of that is that, you know, we're now have the technical abilities with Zoom and GoToMeeting and everything else that we didn't have 10 years ago or five years ago. So we can do much of the same work um, uh, essentially equivalently. Personally, it meant I didn't have to travel as much. I can't say I miss that. Um, I used to spend probably, I don't know, 50 or 60% of my time on the road if I can't. Well, if you do international work, you do international work. And part of that is showing up and being there and understanding the settings in which the trials are being conducted. So we now regularly have Zooms, you know, and I get up at three o'clock in the morning to, you know, for India. And so, so uh, lots of um, sort of manual changes, but principally, I think we... Um, pivoted much of our work to focus on the kind of research that needed to be done and that was being initiated to understand the treatment prevention and symptom amelioration and natural history of COVID-19 itself, Mm -hmm. which we hadn't obviously done before. And there we saw almost immediately significant changes in how we do clinical research um, in local experience of the disease and therefore the impact on the research itself, um, as well as some of the conduct issues in the research. And um, if it's okay, let me give you some good examples to to say what um, I mean. So Boston, as you know, was one of the very early hotspots. We had enormous number of patients uh, coming to the hospital, all elective surgery, all elective procedures were um, paused and halted. Um, And uh, everything pivoted to uh, treating uh, patients with COVID-19. And every staff member that could assist in, in care was uh, was redeployed to care for patients. Um, all research was halted, um, uh, with the exception of some which were essential for maintaining the health of the individuals. Some, for instance, on cancer chemotherapy trials, where you could only get the drug if it was a, uh, on protocol, mm-hmm. continued. But for the most part, uh, everything else was stopped. What happened was that immediately there were so many different COVID-19 protocols that came forward that the institution had to make, had to figure out how to prioritize those for several reasons. One, we had to make sure that they could coexist in the setting of scarcity when we didn't have enough, you know, PPE for the clinicians and the patients, no less the essential workers. Mm -hmm. And were we really going to do elective clinical research that required now PPE or should, should that just be delayed? Um, and uh, so there, there was a, a, a fair amount of effort on uh, prioritizing the trials and then prioritizing among 
the, the trials that addressed COVID-19? Are we going to work on, uh, you know, drugs that like hydroxychloroquine or, or new drugs like remdesivir or brand new drugs that people wanted to try and didn't know or all of them? Mm-hmm. And if it's all of them, then which patients get which ones as a start and who makes that decision and what's the priority? Immensely, immensely complicated. The second thing we saw was that a lot of the actual procedures needed to be changed. So we used to have, you know, in-person discussions with patients for as long as they needed to, um, to, to talk and ask questions in order to um, have a responsible, informed consent process. So we made sure they understood what we were asking and that they agreed and didn't have any further questions. That used to be face-to-face. It could no longer be face-to-face. Right. We used to have consent signed by the patient in the presence of a witness. That was no longer possible. So we went to electronic consents for many of these things, or witness through a window, or you took a picture on an iPad and sent it in, but somebody was there watching you sign the iPad. All sorts of things that we had never done before. Um, and then as as the pandemic went on and both the intensity diminished, um, we started moving and really re-examining these trials that were ongoing to make sure that every visit was essential and that if we could do anything virtually, we made it possible to do it virtually. So if you could have a check-in by a video conference um, and not have to come to the hospital to be, uh, you know, have your blood pressure and weight and make sure you're feeling okay, we did it virtually. Um, If we could have drug delivered to your home, we figured out how to do that. Um, If we could, so all sorts of flexibilities were introduced Right. Into the, how we do these, um, the trials, which I think are really beneficial and are helpful to patients um, because they don't have to spend two hours coming in from New Hampshire, finding a parking space, waiting in a waiting room for 40 minutes for somebody to weigh them, take their blood pressure and say, you look fine. Do you feel fine? Right, right. <laughs> so I think those kinds of things, I hope. We continue, despite the fact that we will have a vaccine and life will hopefully get more towards normal. I don't know what the new normal will look like, but those are those are you know flexibilities that I think don't compromise the work or the data or the experience, but really are patient centric in a way that is respectful of their time. Um, so we've done lots of. Uh, things like that. And, you know, in terms of our own work at the center, we've been both tracking that and trying to help it. We developed a series of um, health literate uh, uh, flyers for patients. You know, what we found was that a patient would come into the hospital very, very sick, end up in isolation, and then be asked to participate in a trial. Now, some Mm. patients had never even heard of a clinical trial. Right. Right. And they had no idea what they were going to, um, what they were being asked. 
And it didn't matter whether it was hydroxychloroquine or remdesivir. They didn't know what their choice was. Did they have to say yes in order to get treated? So we prepared a series of one-pagers, um, which we call the Should I Join uh, flyers, independent of what you were being asked to do. If you were going to be asked to be in a trial at all or to give blood or if your child was going to be asked or, you know, we wanted to make sure that you knew it was your choice and that there were alternatives and these are the kinds of questions you can ask the team as a way of trying to empower the patient um, or, the, or the normal volunteer to feel like they were in a position where they could you know, understand what they were being asked and then decide for themselves and that they had choices. So those are the kinds of things we've done. We're now, they're now translated into Spanish. We're going to release that this, this week. Um, and uh, we've done ones on general research. And, and now, of course, we've been working on diversity uh, and diverse representation in clinical trials. Right. Okay. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit more about diversity in a, in a little bit. Sure. Uh, um, wow. So it seems like for the patients, there there were, you know, a number of benefits as far as like to their time, um, getting a lot of that time back um, when we went more remote, um, versus you know how clinical trials was normally done. Um, you know, having to come in person mm-hmm. for all the visits, um, but it sounds like that, you know, moving forward, sites will have a much wider uh, radius that they can enroll patients in if they're, if patients aren't going to be required to come in as much um, to on-site. Yeah. I hope that's true. Um, You know, certain regulations may have to change for that to be true, (laughs) but, you know, we'll, we'll, we're hoping that we'll be able to, um, find a way to maintain the things that have been good about these flexibilities. And I, I think that our, in general, society understands that. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, typically I think clinical trials has been pretty, uh, conservative to adapt to new thing, like especially technologies. Um, as early as I I think a year ago, I was still working on a study with paper, um, TMF. Um, and that's ridiculous because the electronic TMF is so widespread now. And so you see yeah. these type of things all across the industry where they're still using like old outdated technologies. Um, so it's amazing how fast one can adapt when, when kind of forced or put in a situation where you have to. That's uh, right. That's absolutely right. Um, it's, it's just amazing. Right. Um, so do you think, so, so what kind of things do you think will go back to normal after when things get more normal or will, or will this be the new normal? Will, will these new technologies and yeah. the way things are done now be the new normal? Because it seems like it's uh, beneficial for a lot of people involved, not just the patients, but, um, the study staff. Um, and if people are comfortable using these technologies as a lot of people are, what's the downside? Right. So, um, I hope that um, many of these technologies are here to stay and uh, that we don't go back to the old ways of having to see people just to see them and lay eyes on them because you can lay eyes uh, at a distance. Um, I also hope that we can 
you know, use these technologies to simplify the work um, for participants um, and that they can regain their time. I think it will broaden the radius, as you say, of um, the kinds of patients that can participate. Mm -hmm. I just hope that we also don't lose um, the power of the relationship, which I think is very helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, Because the further away one is, I think the at times the harder it is to understand the environment and the culture and the um, what somebody is going through. It just seems like it's not as relevant if you're sitting on a Zoom call rather than if you're sitting by their side. Right. And I think we've got to be careful that we don't lose the benefit of, of um, also the relationship, which I think is important. You know, is it something that you can measure? Um, I, I, I think it's, it's a challenge. <laughs> um, but I do think, you know, it's, um, it's always the things that people have the most trouble telling you that are sometimes the most important. And that, that's easier when there's a good relationship between people. No doubt about that. So I just hope that we, um, you know, have a good balance uh, uh, with um, our efforts. I also think that there's an opportunity to involve many, many more people in research, not just at the academic medical center, but to to use community health centers and to make sure that the doctors, their regular doctors or care, care providers are engaged in a way that hasn't been true in the past. And that we um, find a way of making it much, much easier for people to participate. Hopefully so. Um, so seg- segueing off that point into um, your work in diversity in, in clinical mm-hmm. trials, um, what, what does a lack of diversity in clinical trial patients even mean? Like who, who is being left out of clinical trials? It's a great view? question. So... Um, you know, this is a very complicated um, uh, discussion, but ideally you'd be doing clinical trials on the kinds of people that you expect to take a medicine or a treatment or be, avail themselves of an intervention. So obviously um, that means that eventually, and maybe that's not immediately, and we'll get back to that, the the trial the 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 intervention let's just call it let's say drug for the time being mm-hmm. although the same applies elsewhere the drug should be given and tested on the population that's going to take it later because um, that's the group that we want to know whether it's safe or effective um, and insofar as that you know trial population doesn't reflect the group we've got a problem so in the old days for instance all heart disease drugs were tested largely on white men. And the assumption was it would work the same as women. On women, it would work the same in underrepresented minority men as well. And it turns out that that's, you know, women have a different symptom manifestation often of heart disease and a different course. And, you know, and black men have a different course than white men. Um, uh, depending on the medicine, and it, it's complicated. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so if you never test that, then you're giving the drug to people for whom we do not have data, um, affirmative data, that it works and that it's safe. So, but it's complicated because obviously if something's eventually going to be um, uh, treating a, uh, you know, a child, but that disease is also affecting somebody who is not a child, you should test it probably on the person who's not a child first, or you don't want to test something on people who can't make a decision for themselves when you can get people who can make a cogent decision as to whether they want to participate or not. Right. So there is a role in staging the diversity. But our history has been not to, at least in the global clinical trials and U.S. clinical trials, not not to have sufficient representation of underrepresented minorities, um, nor of uh, often women or of individuals at either end of the age spectrum, like, you know, very young or very old, or people who have many complex conditions, um, you know, who you're treating for heart disease, but who also have kidney disease or who also have HIV or who also have something else. Um, but then once it's approved by the FDA based on this data, it's given to people who also have, you know, heart disease or liver disease or, you know, HIV or whatever I mentioned. You know, so then is it safe in that context? And how do we figure it out? So we started um, on this actually about two and a half years ago when we realized that there was some very good data published by the FDA in, res in response to one of the legislative mandates to expose the race, ethnicity, sex, and ages of those populations from trials upon which drugs were approved. So they were the pivotal trials that led to an approval. That's not all the data that exists, but that was the data that was most carefully examined. And we found significant underrepresentation, both of women, of the elderly, and of Black African-American hmm. individuals, um, Asians, and in the early days, they didn't even code or report on Hispanic or Latinx patients because they didn't collect the data or if it was collected, if it were collected, they didn't publish it. That That's now corrected. So that's ethnicity, not race, exactly. And if you look at, let's say, oncology, all oncology drugs or all um, cardiovascular drugs, approved in that in that first set of years, the numbers were less than 3% Black and African American, even though we know that the rate is higher and the severity is greater. And when you look at psychiatric disease, on the other hand, um, fully 24.7% of patients were Black and African American. Now, why? We don't know why. But it means that it can be done. It just wasn't being done. Now, there's no evidence to say that the drugs didn't work. But on the other hand, there's no reason to say that they did work. 
uh, as well. And we don't even know if it matters that they work as well. They could make work better. They could work a little less well, but we wanted to make sure that they work. <laughs> right. So it's a complicated question because I think it has to do with the science behind all this, i.e. if you don't have enough patients in that group to do a rigorous statistical analysis, you don't, what are you doing it at all for? Like, why, why, why worry about it? You're never going to be able to say one way or another. And on the other hand, it has a lot to do with public trust and it has a lot to do with social equity and health equity. Right. So really complicated. Um, and then COVID came along. And of course, we now know that the incidence and severity for Black, Latinx, Pacific Islander, um, Asian, Native American uh, individuals is higher than the white population. And yet the clinical trials are underrepresented in all of those categories. So we need to make doubly sure that we are consciously and um, of, you know, intentionally including these folks to make sure that they're, that our results rep represent the disease. Okay. So, you know, I, I was on a study about two years ago. Mm -hmm. I forget the indication, but it was in, it was a, a brain central nervous system. Um, that was the, the unit. And I remember that it was so hard for them to find subjects. They, I mean, I think a lot of um, studies are like this too, where, you know, it's so hard to find subjects and they can never get enough subjects and they can never enroll enough. Um, and they have, end up having to extend the enrollment period. So, so how is it that some of these groups are left out when there seems to be a need for patients? Yeah. Um, so a, a, a couple of things. Um, and in the document that we just, you know, made available that's on our website, we go through lots and lots of different, different barriers to enrollment and recruitment and retention, as well as what we can do about it. Um, why we should take this seriously and then how to fix the problem. So I'm only going to touch on some. Um, first of all, I think that there is uh, an aspect that, um, you know, there is an issue with public trust in the research. Uh, we come from a history of having really not respected um, uh, under, underserved populations and underrepresented populations. Um, and the memory, whether they know the name or not, of Tuskegee or being a yep. guinea pig, et cetera, yep. is real. Um, and we have, uh, you know, we have to be careful that we um, answer for not only for those issues but and problems in our history, but also that we are clear about the safeguards and protections that are in place today. That's harder when the majority of the investigator population is is not black or, or Hispanic. Mm -hmm. So we need to do a, a real work on workforce development and supporting diverse, uh, you know, um, investigators as well. That's a good if point. we're just 
if we're just focusing on race and ethnicity at the moment. Um, but I also think we're not recruiting from places where they live. We're not recruiting in a manner that is understandable um, in terms of putting, um, you know, accessing uh, sites where they will likely see an advertisement or a call. We don't engage their community health centers or where they get their care. Um, and the whole system starts at wherever one looks at it, one can find things that we could be doing better. You know, we expect people until COVID-19 to take, to come to clinic, to be screened. Um, you know, and our clinic hours are from nine to five. So somebody's got to take half a day off or a day off. Well, it turns out that essential workers have a really hard time doing that. Right. And then we then we don't provide childcare. We don't provide elder care. We don't provide translation services. We don't even provide transportation. You get to pay for yourself. And then we'll see if you're good enough, as it were, in quotes, to get into the study. Well, right. all of that could be changed, right? Yeah. And we can go down the list of all of the things that we took for granted that I say today we should start re-examining and we should start pulling it, you know, um, focusing on making the fact that individuals are putting themselves at risk for the benefit of society and treating, treating them like the privileged and, and generous uh, contributors that they are. That's a, that's a really good point. Um, you know, I never, I never really actively think about the fact that the, you know, the patient visits could take, you know, four or five hours and that's a, that's pretty much a whole day. Uh, if you're right. a, a working individual, you know, working nine to five, um, that's a lot of time. And especially if you're you know, coming back monthly or, you know, every other month or yeah. sometimes even fewer than that, um, you know, what kind of, what kind of job is going to accept being gone that much? Right. Um, you know, for a clinical study. So, you know, that's a really good point. Um, have you guys found any, I mean, I guess the obvious solution is to do these visits after hours if possible. Right. Um, I mean, and is why it, isn't it possible? We have emergency rooms. True. We should be able to have extended clinic hours. You know, we have grocery stores today have extended hours for the elderly. Right. We should do that. Right. You know, and uh, and I I think it's um, for those visits that need to be done in person. And similarly, we used to have, and, and some places still do, have enormous concerns about paying people for their participation. And it's one thing to say, oh, you know, you'll get you'll get rich if you participate in the study, but it's another to say, you know, we should reimburse you for your transportation costs right and for your time if right. you have to take time off work or right. i mean why should somebody be worse off for contributing to society and i don't we used to worry that it's what we called undue inducement that people will be motivated to do something that they wouldn't do otherwise if they or if it weren't for the money i don't think that's true yeah, not for a lot of these conditions. 
for sure. Right. Because um, I know some sometimes you know, you know, being involved in these clinical trials is like the only option for you know great health care, um, or having access to the medication. So, yeah, yeah, that, that's that's a really good point. Um, so from from your perspective, you know, working on um, you know, the lack of diversity in clinical trial patients, what would you, what would be considered a conce- uh, success for that? Um, I think if the, the trials begin to reflect the population, um, either of the disease itself or for whom the drug or intervention is intended. And of course, some of that will not be during the product development, like the, you know, FDA regulated trials. It'll be after approval. You know, you can't tell if something is equally safe for somebody um, with a set of, you know, uh, uh, additional conditions, you know, other diseases on many medicines, whether those drugs interact, et cetera, um, in the drug development stage. Just, but but you can afterwards, and you can do it with real world data, and by having certain studies that continue. So I think that would be successful. I would also think it's success if, in general, people began to trust the medical, um, you know, uh, um, efforts to uh, use clinical trials as a way of making things safer for the population, not less safe, which is after all what we're trying to do. You know, there are countries in the world that think it's um, irresponsible and immoral or unethical to do uh, clinical research on children. And I always say to them, you know, so is it more ethical to give um, products to children for on whom we have, for which we have no data than to expose some children under controlled conditions to at least make sure it's safe and effective for children. Mm -hmm. Because what's the alternative here? The alternative is we don't know what we're doing. True. (laughs) True. We just pretend. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So for, um, you know, just the last couple of questions here, because sure. uh, just so we can wrap up, um, how can people get involved with y- your work at the MRCT and uh, support your initiatives? What what would be the best way for people to do that? So uh, probably the easiest is to go online and look at what we're doing, which is at the at our website, mrctcenter.org. Mm-hmm. Um, and then. There's also an email address there, and you can sign up there to get our newsletter, and you'll know everything we're doing. Or you know, so that as if something comes up that you're really interested in, just let us know. We'd love to increase the participation, particularly of the people that you know you're speaking with, the people who are on the front lines doing these trials, developing a career in clinical research. These are the people that will change the future. And, you know, for as much as our efforts at um, sort of figuring out how to do better, the 
the groups you speak to are the people who will make it better and make it, you know, envision a future in the way that we'd like it to be seen. So we'd love to, to work with you. Okay. And of course I'll put those links in the description on both uh, YouTube and um, in the podcast notes. Um, do you guys do have volunteers or internships? I know there, there are people out there who, um, you know, would be really interested in, in working with you guys uh, in further capacity. Yeah, that's great. So um, we have some internships, of course, this year they're all virtual, but we have um, some internships. In fact, we have some uh, three uh, students now writing health literate materials for kids. So, um, there you go. but we, we, uh, we always, we're, you know, a, an educational institution and would love to, um, have interns and, and, uh, individuals working with us. There has to be a commitment of a certain amount of time so that it's, um, beneficial in both directions so that you understand enough about what the work we do to contribute to it as well as learn with us. Um, but yes, there are possibilities. Okay. We are an equal opportunity employer. So, you know, we do go through a process and, you know, an internship is sometimes, um, volunteers if it's for credit, but if it's a paid position, then we of course have the usual, um, you know, sort of safeguards against nepotism and, you know, privilege. Of course. So, Yeah. Okay. So, uh, before, before we sign off, do you have any, um, last words you'd like to, um, I guess, tell the audience about your work or anything like that? Um, well, I just want to thank your audience for all the work you do. It's much more important in terms of, um, leading the clinical trials than sitting back and thinking about how they should be run. So I think that the people on the front lines are really doing the, the, heavy lifting here and we're contributing, um, to, to thinking about it. It's always hard to fly to build a plane as you fly it. Right. So we have the, um, the ability to sort of look at the plane and make sure we're going in the right direction. So thank you. Well, thank you so much for coming on Dr. Beer. I really appreciate your time and all the, the knowledge you, you gave us on, on the podcast today. Um, hopefully we'll be able to, um, do another one at, at a later date uh, when you have some more updates. Um, but I really appreciate your time. So thank you. For I look forward to it. Thank you. Thanks very much.